This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films, joined as always by Paddy Barclay, the legendary journalist and football writer. If you're watching this video, please give it a like, subscribe, join in the conversation in the comments section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe, give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Apologies in advance for my squeaky voice in this uh, episode. Um, I've just about held it together to um, be able to speak. So um, it's one I couldn't miss, of course, because we're talking about Paddy, um, the second part of the 1957-58 season. Last time round, we ended on February 6th, 1958. The Manchester United players were celebrating after um, knocking out Red Star Belgrade. They're yeah. actually celebrating with the Red Star Belgrade players. You had Secular, yeah. right, their star man. He'd uh, arranged to meet Tommy Taylor after that summer's World Cup. They were going to go on a cruise together. Um, it just shows, it shows and emphasises that, yes, they were footballers, but they are also very normal men as well. Yes, they were. And, and it, it's quite interesting, the contrast between the atmosphere on the field. It was very competitive, although it was a great match, fantastically exciting. Uh, three all draw, but uh, the the atmosphere was still there was sort of recrimination and counter recrimination, certainly expressed by the press um, in terms of the number of fouls on both sides. The Yugoslavs tended to blame uh, Man United and Man United's journalistic followers um, tended, although not all, or not all of them. Donny Davis in the Manchester Guardian said something about it the, the referee's whistle was like a flute obligato so often did he blow up for fouls on both sides so i think donnie davis in the manchester guardian who's listeners to this podcast will know as one particular hero of mine um he seemed to think it was 61 half a dozen of the others other people blamed other of the manchester based press blamed red star but afterwards all forgotten a wonderful conviviality, a banquet at which Matt Busby said, ev, ev, you know, the whole Red Star family, the gates are open of Old Trafford to you for forever and, and so on. 
Um, interestingly, a journalist called Miro Radojic uh, took this literally and uh, decided um, as the evening wore on to fly home with United if he could and uh, to do a piece about this great team that was uh, threatening to take over Europe and uh, from Real Madrid. So uh, it was a very convivial uh, evening. The, um, there were songs. Um, the, you've talked about Tommy Taylor and he's, well, he was one of the Yorkshire contingent uh, along with David Pegg and Mark Jones. And they sang on Il Clamour Bartat. Um, Roger Byrne, the, the skipper, uh, led the team in that presumably quite a, one or two wines and sliverviches had slipped down by now. Uh, he led the team in a rendering of the old wartime favourite, We'll Meet Again. And so it was just lovely. And the players wanted, uh, the United players certainly wanted to carry on celebrating their qualification for the semi-finals. So Roger uh, Byrne slipped uh, the boss, Matt Busby, a, a note saying, can we, can we go out for a drink, boss? And uh, he replied, yes, you can have half an hour, which placed the, the case. The players went, oh, come on. You know, so he said, OK, an hour. Well, they took that uh, as a basis for negotiation. And in fact, quite a few of them went out for an hour, came back in so that Matt's and his assistants, Bert, um, um, Bert Wally and uh, Tom Curry, um, who were his principal assistants, because as everyone will know, Jimmy Murphy was absent uh, looking after the Welsh national team in a uh, playoff against Israel. So the, 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 the Busby management team saw the players come in. What they didn't see was them slipping out the back door of the hotel afterwards to go out again. They went to the British Embassy Social Club, a few of them. Uh, a few of them stayed in and played cards, including Harry Gregg. Um, uh, but you're quite right, Tommy Taylor and I think Edwards, uh, Mart Martin Edwards, Duncan Edwards. Uh, Martin was far too young to be playing for the team at that time, but they went as uh, they palled up with Sekularic, Dragosav Sekularic, a wonderful world-class midfield player, and the journalist that I mentioned, Miro Radojic, and they went to a club, a nightclub that was particularly recommended, and there they continued um, continued social, socialising, and uh, so that was it. And uh, they got to bed pretty early, so when the time came to wake up the next day one or two of them had uh, pretty tender heads yeah um you mentioned in the the last podcast that there was a, a story about harry Gregg with the book obviously united they were traveling from belgrade but they had to stop over in, in munich to refuel as well yes um they on they refueled in munich on each occasion the weather as so often at the quarterfinal stage um, it, during Manchester United's early times in Europe, this February, January, February sort of um, period, the weather was appalling, usually. I mean, it had been before. Bilbao, I think, had been pretty testing yeah. for the pilots. Um, and this very much uh, flew into the, uh, the pattern of this. The weather was, was, was not 
too bad it had relented as you regular followers of the podcast will know it had relented just in time there was a threat to the actual playing of the quarterfinal uh but it relented just in time for the game to be played but it was worsening in in munich so that was the background one other thing we need to know about the background and it is the layout of the plane and if i've got two two seconds just really to to go through that because it does become tragically significant as we go on it was the elizabethan uh plane very comfortable plane and it had an unusual layout it had a table of six rather like a a larger version of um of a train uh, a table at, at, um, with, with three seats on either side that was in the middle of the plane on the other side near the middle on the other side was a, a table for four um, and behind it at the front of the plane were four sets of seats of two facing backwards away from the cockpit at the back of the plane were six on each side six rows of two facing forward so it was a sort of it was a more sort of convivial sort of plane um then you know now everybody's looking forward and and but this was this was a plane designed for charters where people might socialize a little bit more the um the table for six was on the way out had been commandeered by greg uh, barry wood a couple of others six of probably the most intense card school and they thought this would be perfect for our card school of six so they'd uh, commandeered that a smaller card school had commandeered the other the, the table of four and the rest were strewn around the journalists had gone to the back because there was a i mean bear in mind that flying was a little bit of a scary business now it's very rare now for someone to get on a plane and to be frightened uh in those days it was not unusual at all so the the journalists i mean jocularly but with nervous jocularity made for the back because there was um a, a sort of feeling based on world war ii uh so often when bombers had crashed the rear gunner escaped so there was just a feeling hmm, among the journalists who were a bit older and more aware of the second world wars um, sort of conventions yeah. they went to the back of the plane and everybody else just sort of dispersed themselves around uh, that was on the journey out and, and as you you, you you could imagine people sort of gravitated towards similar arrangements uh on the way back and the card school of course were no exception apart from one harry gregg had been playing cards in the hotel the night while taylor and edwards were out um hobnobbing in the club with secularich and, and others they had been um greg and others had been playing cards in the in the hotel and they'd been playing with yugoslav dinar which was a very devalued currency in that time so you would be they're playing with piles of these 
10,000 dinar notes. And Greg had absolutely, um, you know, cleaned up, you know, he'd won and won and won and won. And they had these, you know, tons of these uh, Yugoslav currency. And when they got back on the plane, he said, right, um, we're to play dinars. And the others infuriated Harry by saying, no, no, we'll play in pounds, shillings and pence, English currency on the way back. And he thought, well, how in the hell am I going to get rid of, rid of these dinars? You know, we must keep playing in dinars. And um, anyway, they said, no, no, whether they're winding up, I don't know. Anyway, Harry said, right, I'm going to just have a snooze. And he moved away from that table and went into one of the um, one of the little seats of two with Bill Fawkes in front of him. I can't remember who was next to him. And um, uh, so that was that was that was the kind of jostling for position that that, that went on before um, the who sat where was to prove, as I say, ex extremely um, significant. But I just wanted to establish that picture of the of the atmosphere on the plane. Yeah, um, the plane, yeah, it, it was a charter plane. It stopped in Munich to refuel. Yeah. And there was a lot of um, <clears throat> heavy snow there. There was, United and under, ice. Yeah, United were under a lot of pressure from the Football League to return in time for Saturday's match with Wolves, so couldn't afford a delay. Um, yes. There were two two takeoff attempts which were failed as the plane couldn't register enough power. Um, and at one point, it did look as though they'd resigned themselves to to the you know being at the uh, mercy of the weather because Duncan Edwards sent a telegram to his landlady saying that all flights were cancelled. They'd fly That's tomorrow, right. um, so there must have been some resignation within the camp That's... that they were probably going to miss the um, the the wolf game. That's absolutely right, and 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 in fact, this um, Tom Jackson of the I, I think was he Evening News or Chronicle? I can't Evening remember. News. But Evening News. He, um, you know, being an astute newsman, um, realized this was a story. If United, uh, if United, if United's plane was postponed for a day with this massive match against Wolves, probably. United's last chance of retaining hope of a third successive league title um, because Wolves were the, the front runners and they needed to be paid back. Um, so, you know, massive match. And in any case, you know, the, Man United didn't want to get in trouble with, with the league, who was still a bit Eurosceptic at that time. And um, as you say, it, it was it was cold so so much so that at the first landing uh, at Munich, um, two of the players I, I can't remember. I think Coleman would have been little imp. Coleman would have been one of them. Um, they were chucking snowballs at the ground crew. Meanwhile, the captains, the the pilots, um, Messrs. Fane and Raymond, uh, arranged for the the planes de-icer, wing de-icer, to be put on, and um, the uh, the engineer from British European Airways, um, you know, clambered over the wings. He said it's absolutely fine. You know, um, the the de-icing's working. We're going to be we're going to be all right. They went in, but as you say, the first attempt, the engines were racing. So uh, Thane and Raymond uh, decided, okay, what we do 
is we just not give the engine so much throttle and then we'll be able to get up you get more purchase on the, the snow and slushy ground and sure enough the, the plane goes away again by now there's a little bit of apprehension among the, the players and the journalists and so on inside the the plane but not too much and the plane goes through the waves of slush either side of the plane as it heads off towards the snowy end of the runway. And once again, it doesn't quite reach the right speed readings on the dials. They cut and they decide we're going to need a third, um, a third attempt at takeoff. And they went back yet again to the terminal. Um, and it was the third attempt that went so horribly wrong. And um, do you, if you if you like, um, I'll have to consult my book um, uh, that I wrote about Busby's life um, to go through what actually happened, the fateful third takeoff. Um, do you want me to do that, Wayne? Yes, please do, yes. Um, right. The... Uh, during the, to give you a, an idea, Mark Jones, who you will see third from the left in that lovely picture of the team limbering up for the second leg against Red Star, Mark Jones had decided um, on one of the intervals between the takeoffs to buy St. Christopher medal, which brings travelers good luck. Anyway, um, the third um the third attempt at takeoff the elizabethan had fallen near silent there were jokes still being made but they weren't so light-hearted and players started to change seats bobby charlton and dennis violet moved forward to the, towards the front of the plane which turned out to be a, a very good decision and david pegg who'd gone off the idea of playing cards with Bill Fultz and Kenny Morgans, joined Eddie Coleman, Tommy Taylor, Duncan Edwards, and the journalists near the back. These were significant reassessments of risk. Um, Thane and Raymond decided to take the third takeoff. At 3.02 p.m., and bear in mind, everyone was looking forward to getting home. Journalists had the press ball that night. The controllers told Thane and Raymond, your clearance void, if not airborne by 04, time now 02.302. This was, it sounds like a severe deadline, but it, it wasn't. And there was always the chance of a fourth attempt at, at uh, uh, at, at, at a takeoff. Thane took another look at the wings and having decided there was no need for a, a, a sweep of, of the snow, assistant Ray, assisted Raymond to control the surging of the engines until with them on full power, the plane reached 117 knots. That was V1 and Thane duly called out V1. But at 119 knots, two more, V2 and that was when you hoisted the Elizabethan into the sky. It was never reached. Instead, the needle dropped to 112, and remember, you needed 119. 
then 105 raymond said christ we're not going to make it through the snow the pilots could make out a house and a tree right in front of in front of the plane in an attempt to break the plane raymond ordered the raising of the undercarriage so that the plane would break itself by going belly belly down on the snow it worked a bit he steered the plane away from the house which saved the occupants which was uh, which were a woman and her children and i spoke to um for the book harry greg gave me an interview it was the last he ever gave about the um which you told me wayne about the, the crash because he felt he'd just poured everything into that one and he remembered uh, um the players liam whelan devout catholic who said well if it happens i'm ready and now it was about to happen i said last week that there was going to be a funny story and, 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 and I was conscious that anybody listening to it would think, what on earth could we find funny about the crash at Munich? But that was Harry Craig. Harry, Harry Craig remembered that he was of Protestant but very staunch upbringing. He believed in the fires of hell and so on. And he'd taken a book on this trip. And he suddenly realized that this book was perhaps a little steamy uh, to find favor with the guardians of the pearly gates. He said, he said later, it was about as raunchy as the Beano. But, uh, you know, this was at a time when, you know, the Lady Chatterley's lover and, and so on and, 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 and books you know, with explicit sexual scenes, even quite mild ones, were considered, you know, really um, dubious. And these thoughts were going through his mind, which I know it's not funny because he was thinking it, of, of it in the terms of his own demise. To take his thoughts away from that, he looked forward, he could see the back of Harry Gregg's um, head, and he, he thought if there is a crash, it, the bulkhead will come back and slice our heads off. So Harry loosened his belt and leaned back in the, uh, in the seat. So there were a possibility of, of misfortune had been on their mind. And now it was happening. The plane was slewing um, across. Busby realized this has gone on too long, too long. And the plane had slid across a road. Its left wing struck the house, causing no damage, no injury. And the engine cowl to the tip was torn off. It spun and the tail section careered into a fuel compound on the perimeter of the airline, full of intensely inflammable fuel. And it the fuel compound exploded burned furiously which is why the people in the back including many journalists but also some players 
did not survive. Um, Greg and others then became heroes, including the pilots. Well, um, uh, one of the pilots, one of them, I'm afraid, was trapped by the legs in the plane um, after the crash. But Greg emerged from the fuselage in the darkness. He saw Bert Wally lying still in the snow. He saw Roger Bird lying still. And the thing he could remember most was seeing Roger Burns eyes dead and his watch, the second hand still going around on his watch. It's an image that haunted him forever. Anyway, Greg was a hero, saved, helped to, to save Matt Busby, the, to get them away from the plane because the pilots were saying in, in colorful language get away do not this i can we can smell the fuel this is this could the rest of the plane could now bl blow up and us with it so while he was desperately trying to free his colleague from the, the who was trapped by the legs in the cockpit the pilot was saying to everybody else go go but greg ignored this and so did uh, a photographer and a, a technician from the daily mail um, their names were uh, Ted Elliard and um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the other one, I, I can't remember, but they were heroic as well. And they, Greg heard the crying of a, of a toddler. And this was the wife of the air Yugoslav air attache, attache, her name was Vera Lukic and her daughter, Verena, aged 22 months, and Verena was crying. Greg went back in, found them in the darkness, and then had to get them out of a hole in the fuselage. That wasn't easy because Mrs. Lukic had broken both of her legs. So as she screamed, Greg had somehow, however roughly, to get her into the snow and to safety, which he did. And the, obviously, and the baby as well. And uh, he helped also to get Charlton and Violet, who had somehow been thrown out, seatbelts and all, and landed in the, in the snow, had they not swapped seats um, to the front, of the front half of the plane, they would probably have perished. Um, it's worth just one other thing I, I would like to say. There was a steward called Tommy Cable. There were two stewardesses who, thank God, survived. Tommy Cable, the male steward, always went on United trips because he was a United fan, although the, uh, the family lived around Heathrow Airport. And Tommy, the players had got to know Tommy, and because he was always on their trips, he made sure that he always got his roster on the United trips and he I'm afraid perished because he there was talk in some quarters that Tommy Cable had not been 100% professional at the towards the dangerous end of the trip uh, but in actual fact what what I discovered was that Tommy had swapped his steward seat 
which was at the back of the plane facing forward for what proved to be one of the safer seats and that one of the players i, I can't remember which one it was survived and Tommy cable died so i think Tommy cable's role should be reassessed that's just one thing i'd like to say but the long and short of it was that 23 there were 23 victims including the vast majority of the well the, the heart of the team um duncan edwards wasn't dead yet he was taken to hospital along with matt and the other players who were injured but not dead um but duncan edwards did perish after 14 days in hospital um plus all but one of the journalists um died including matt's friend frank swift who he tried to bring as goalkeeper um, to manchester united franks was now working for the news of the world and so uh, the 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 cream of of journalism really football journalism was wiped out along with the cream of of football um players such as roger byrne duncan edwards who would have been the future not only of manchester united but of england yeah, um, Taylor, Taylor would have been again his his he would have been one of Lee, England's leading goal scorers of well, he in goals for the game he remains one of England's leading goal scorers Peg was England quality as indeed might have been his understudy Albert Scanlon or well his rival for the position Violet was a great player um, but of course Violet did did play on um uh but as you can see the 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 future of, of of football really um was altered um by the tragic death of of, of all these players at Munich. yeah um seven um of those who were instantly killed were manchester united players um jeff bent roger byrne eddie coleman mark jones david pegg tommy taylor Billy Whelan. Um, he can, this is, if you're watching the video, you can see the Daily Mirror's um, report, their picture from the 7th, which um, shows you the instant confusion with who was alive and who was um, still mm. missing in the wreckage. Um, yeah. Three club staff perished, Walter Crickmer, Bert Wally, Tom Curry, and uh, while we're talking about the supporters as well, Willie Satanoff was um, a renowned, he always travelled to all the, the away games and was a close, he'd sort of ingratiated himself in the Cromford Club um, gang yeah. with Busby. And, um, but the casualties didn't stop there, Paddy. I mean, the further casualties, Johnny Berry, the right winger who had been relentlessly consistent since signing, he would play no more. He suffered a fractured skull, broken pelvis, broken leg all of his teeth had to be removed <clears throat> he was so ill in hospital that he couldn't be told of the crash and that was the same for many of these people who were desperately ill yes well there was uh, jackie jackie blanche flower as well never yeah. really played again um so although thank god their their, their lives weren't over their careers to all intents and purposes were yeah um two fateful decisions not to fly you mentioned jimmy murphy earlier on and first and foremost like you said he'd been in charge of the the welsh national team for mm -hmm. for a little while now on account of his his great work 
at United, which hadn't gone unnoticed. Um, yeah. They had this crucial World Cup qualifier. Uh, Murphy was a devout Welshman, but uh, wanted yeah. to go with United before Busby actually insisted, no, you stay with your country. Um, yeah. The other absentee from the trip was Harold Ardman, who he'd vowed never to travel by air after Bilbao. Um, but just while we're discussing the upper echelons of the club and the passings mm-hmm. and the people coming and going, we should mention as well that George Whitaker, one of the directors, had died the previous weekend. Um, he, he, the he, that's right. He died in the team hotel the night before the classic match against Arsenal, which preceded the trip to um, Belgrade via Munich. And Whitaker was very much against, you mentioned Willie Satinoff earlier. Now, Willie was a great friend of Matt Busby's and a great friend of Manchester United, as you know. Um, he had a rainwear company and he, Alligator Rainwear, it was called. And he, he was very popular. Um, and it was felt certainly by Whitaker that he would have been a better candidate for addition to the board than Louis Edwards, another friend of Matt's, who was um, who was very much keen to, 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 to join the board. Louis Edwards didn't go. Louis Edwards was thinking of going on that trip that, that, that Willie Satinoff did go on, but decided that since the board were very dubious about whether he should be invited on, one or two of the board members, uh, that it would be embarrassing if he went. Hardman uh, may still have gone despite his um, his anti-flying. Um, oh, and, and another thing we need to say about flying is that there had been a, a fatal air disaster at, in Manchester less than a year earlier. In Manchester, so it would have been fresh in everybody's minds. Uh, this just to add to the, the, the sort of fear of flying that, that, that was around that time. But um, yes, the uh, Hardman and another director, William Petherbridge, decided to go to Whitaker's funeral, which was on the same day as the Red Star match. Um, and uh, so it was a, it, 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 it wasn't a, a great sort of directorial presence on the um, thing, but of course, on, on the trip, but of course, Satinoff's death did clear the way um, for Louis Edwards's candidature and, and he was, um, he did become with great significance, a member of the board um, around two weeks after the crash. During, the, <clears throat> during this period, Everyone was uncertain about what you know what state the club was going to be in, and if they indeed they would continue. There were numerous meetings. Um, obviously, the first thing that had to happen yeah. was um, for for the members back in Manchester to fly out to Munich and see um, how grave the the damage was. Um, Jimmy Murphy was obviously being Matt's assistant. He flew out there yeah. to assess the situation, and it seemed obviously that there was going to be this indefinite limbo, but. Busby, in a rare moment of lucidity, um, obviously he was he was found, but he was read the last rites a couple of times. Um, he was in yeah. grave danger, but he yeah. urged, grave danger and great pain because of, yeah. he cracked so many ribs. Yeah, 
he um he urged Jimmy to keep the flag flying. Um, and Jimmy yes. felt that the best use of all his energy he had uh, was to manifest this grief and, and move it forward. He met yes. Duncan shortly after seeing Busby, and he said Duncan had basically said, "Get stuck in, Chief." Um, even yeah. though it was unrealistic, um, Duncan that Duncan would ever play again or even walk again. The sense yeah. I always got when I was writing the Jimmy book um, was that Jimmy always felt that anything was possible with Duncan, that he yeah. might recover. So he returned yeah. to Manchester and he resolved to build a team. Um, he, he and Joe Armstrong, I mean, I mean, what the work that they took on in this period of time, they, they did immediately bring back Joe uh, Jack Crompton. Um, who returned as a trainer, um, mm. but Armstrong took on the responsibilities of Walter Crickmer, um, mm. which was a very, very grim task. He was arranging all the funerals, liaising with all the families. Um, housemates, if you can imagine this, the housemates of the players, when the belongings were being returned to Manchester, there was the housemates, the young teenagers who were living with them, who were having to return the belongings to parents. David Gaskell told me, you know, we mentioned in one of the previous episodes how he'd become close with Billy Whelan and and Duncan Edwards, who had got him out of bed the night he'd made his debut, you know, wanted to celebrate with him. Now Gaskell was having to return their belongings, Billy's and Duncan's belongings to their parents. Um, A very, very difficult period of time, but they did um, decide to carry on um, Paddy, which... Really, I mean, this period of time, let's talk about uh, Busby's convalescence yes. because it was a yes. very difficult time for him. Yes, it, it was. I mean, to give you an example, I mean, he was in hospital for, what was it, two, three months in, in uh, the Rechters, der Eisar Hospital in Munich under the overall care of Professor Maurer, who became a greatly respected friend of Manchester United because of the, along with all of his staff, because of the wonderful care they were given. But on the flight, the flight of families that was arranged the following, the day after the crash, um, the one that that you referred to, that Murphy being on, uh, Jean uh, Busby was there with uh, her son, their son, Sandy. And of course, Sandy sort of went on ahead, but he couldn't. You know, he wanted to see all, he looked in all the wards and all the things because he wanted to see his father. And he couldn't see his father anywhere. He, he, he did, though, see one old, grey old man in, a, in an oxygen tent looking, you know, absolutely horrific and thought, oh, that poor old soul. And then he looked in more closely and he saw it was his father, Matt, aged 48, and looking you know, looking like a wreck. And um, his hair seemed to have turned grey overnight. And um, Sandy turned back and and, and warned Jean and his sister Sheena, you know, prepare for a bit of a shock. So Matt was in quite a bad way, and um, but he did get better. Duncan Edwards, as, as we say, as we said, lost his life after 14 days, even the general consensus among Maurer and, and, and the nurses was it was extraordinary that this that young man had the strength to fight for 14 days against injuries which had led Maurer initially to, uh, to murmur 50-50. In fact, as, as, as Duncan said, 
get stuck in to, to Jimmy because he'd, he'd said, what, what time's the kickoff on Saturday in the Wolves match? And Jimmy Murphy had said three o'clock, so, you know, almost as if he, he was thinking, well, I could never even make it. And, and then he said, get stuck in. And at this moment, George, Professor Mauro was walking past and he just murmured 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. And, you know, for 14 days, uh, you know, Edwards fought, but eventually lost his fight, as you say. Yeah. Um, so Jimmy returned to Manchester and resolved to build a team. Um, he took a squad yeah. of players to Blackpool, the Norbrick Hydro Hotel, um, to get away with Matt's favourite, yes, yes. And, and this was supposed, to, this was very much the, uh, the, the right kind of refuge away from the, the gloom and the shock and the trauma of Manchester. Um, uh, Paddy McGrath, Matt Busby's great friend, said that the, the city had not known anything since the raids of wartime in terms of, you know, the, the communal mourning in, in Manchester. And Jimmy realised that if, he, if the flag was indeed to be re-flown, uh, this could only be done by getting them away from that environment into a familiar environment at the Norbrek, um, where they tended to go before really big matches, including the European ones. And it, it, just one little detail, Wayne, if I may, about um, the late David Meek, who was a friend of mine, who everyone listening to this will know as the voice of of uh, Manchester United in the Manchester Evening News, dating from Munich. Because of course, with Tom Jackson's death, they needed a Manchester United reporter, and David was given the job. And David remembers going to the Norbrek, and he said to me that whenever he goes to a swimming pool or a swimming bath. And he can smell the chlorine. He always thinks of those days, the press, because Jimmy gave his press conferences beside the swimming pool at the Norbrek. And, and David said he was always taken back whenever he passed a, a swimming pool and smelled the chlorine. Um, but Jimmy did do a, a great job. And there was all an almost, an almost supernatural uh, air about the first game that Jimmy oversaw uh, when Manchester United played again. Only what was it? Two weeks after the disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in in that period of time, I think he he obviously had to learn how to rebuild a well, not rebuild a team, but how how he was going to deal with being the first team manager because he was very much a a reluctant first team manager. Yes. So the, the the message was much the same as it was when. Most of these lads were in the um, youth team with him, but now it carried a much greater emotional significance and, and resonance. You'll remember, I've, I mentioned it a couple of times, the Nantwich game, uh, where they won 23-0. And yes. saying, keep players is nil-nil. You'll remember the complaints about complacency because of how staggeringly talented the Busby boys were, Busby babes mm. were. Yeah. In one fell swoop, because of the disaster, Mm. complacency had been eradicated and replaced by a raw desire to give everything because these players were lucky to have that opportunity now. Um, and this is basically what um, Murphy gave to United in this decision to, to continue. It was a new quality, unapologetically motivated and fueled by grief. 
Yeah. And it was a heart that became the, one of the most beloved qualities of the club. I mean, you might say he's Duncan Edwards' a spiritual legacy as well, I mean, embodied as it has been by Robson and Keane so marvellously in recent generations, but mm. definitely bestowed upon them by Edwards on the pitch and, and Murphy off it, off it during this period. I also, we've talked about this before, Paddy, many times, but Murphy made mm. another significant decision. Teams were offering players to help, not their best players, but they were still offering. The world's great players were offering their himself, themselves in emotional gestures. You had the likes yeah. of John Charles and Ferenc Puskas, but their wages were astronomical. And now for yeah. all of the talk of United having £200,000 of talent, now it was mostly gone with not a penny or pound yeah. to show for it. Um, Murphy decided the best way to continue was to stay as close to the blueprint um, laid down by Busby, Crickmer, Gibson and Rocker, mostly young players, a couple brought, brought in. And the, the, the quality and character of the two players he brought in, Ernie Taylor, who he, he rated to be the heartbeat of the Matthews final, and Stan Crowther, whose last appearance on an Old Trafford pitch was suffering a rib injury thanks to Duncan Edwards. Um, <laughs> these were the only two players he brought in, um, which is remarkable. Yeah, yeah Crowther had, had a great game. Um uh, for for Villa against United in in the McParland final, as you might call it, um, and so he was an obvious candidate. Another who was signed was the veteran inside forward Ernie Taylor um, from Blackpool, who United had tried to sign before, but uh, yes, he came in as well. As you point out, you know there were offers from. I mean, the, the, at that time, the great amateur club. Of, of, of the best of all in, in England was a, a, a wonderful club called Bishop Auckland from yeah. up in the northeast. Bob Paisley came from there. And um, they were, they had a fantastic uh, squad and they lent their, um, well, three of their top ones. Uh, so good were the, were the ones that they lent to United, probably to bolster up the reserve team more than anything else. But one of them, um, the, the the winger, um, ended up uh, playing playing for England while he was with Manchester United. So big was the um, was the was the impact he made. So, and then of course you've mentioned the Hungarians. You mentioned Ferenc Puskas, I think, and he was in international limbo at this moment because of the banning um, the the the. the the, the UEFA suspensions for leaving Honved after the 1956 revolution in, in Hungary. So, but as you say, the wages for the, for the foreign-based stars, um, obviously not still subject to na maximum wage as the British were, were not, were not, were not practical. But uh, yes, they, I, I'm trying to find the name of the, of the United, of the guy who came from Bishop Auckland and played for England. Anyway, I will, I will find that sooner or later because uh, he, he had, had such a big part to play in the resuscitation of Manchester United. Uh, Warren, Bra Warren Bradley, I believe it was. Warren Bradley it was, exactly. Yeah. I think his family were from the Manchester area, which, uh, which helped. Um, but he yeah. and two other um, Man United players, uh, Bishop Auckland players, really did help Manchester United through in just in um, a, a little addition to that um, the Taylor from Blackpool 
Crowther from Aston Villa had both already played in the FA Cup this season, but were cleared of the usual cup tie. That um, by, you know they weren't allowed to play for two teams in the in the that that was swept away by the FA, and people said, no, in these circumstances, they can play for yeah. um, in the FA Cup. So um, that was it. In addition, um, and probably the the best foundation of the new Manchester United was that Fulks and Bobby Charlton had survived the crash. They had returned to Manchester um, by ferry and, um, and rail. Um, certainly no mood to fly. Um, and they had started training and, 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 and were ready, ready for action. And uh, I'm, I can't wait to see that. I know you have a photograph of the first Manchester United team after Munich running out of the tunnel and the look on captain for the day, captain Bill Fawkes' face. It contains passion. It contains agony. It contains determination. It could have been painted by one of the great masters that the look on Bill Fawkes' face, but we'll see that when you deem the time right. Well, we'll, we'll bring it shortly. Um, I'll, I'll just reflash this picture from the, the no break. Oh, uh, yeah. just, um, it gives you an idea of the scale. So, from is it the Norbreck Hotel, uh, Wayne? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm going to read the um, the players and the, the, the sort of club officials who are on that picture to give you an idea of who's left and you know, who, who was lost. On the back, this is from back to front. So it's Clayton, Gaskell, Greg, Smith, Greaves, Folks, Jones, Goodwin, English, Holland, Cope, Bratt, Harrop, Giles, Webster, Spratt, Taylor, Brennan, Dawson, O'Malley, Pearson, Hunter. And on the front, little Joe Armstrong, Bill English, the, the trainer, Jimmy Murphy, Jack Crompton. It's just... So that's Johnny Giles, but not Nobby Styles hasn't yet reached... Wasn't considered to be in, in that. No. Uh... Although he and he and Giles were great chums, weren't they, in, <laughs> in Manchester? Um, but, uh, yes, you, Giles already looking like a midfield maestro with those bowed legs. Uh, the, the, the ones that the... Coaching staff and, and and scouting staff at the front, as you say, Armstrong. Uh, who was the second one before Jimmy Murphy? The one in Bill English. Bill English, yeah. And um, and and Jack Crompton. They they of course weren't on the on the flight. None of them. But unfortunately, Bert Wally, who I mentioned earlier, perished. Uh, along with Tom Curry, the pipe-smoking Tom Curry, great friend. Um, I mean, among those felt a sense of bereavement when he went was was Bill Shankly, who loved Tom Curry um, from the Carlisle days. Um, and of course, so Matt had lost, you know, his his right-hand men, some of his right-hand men, as well as as everything, as as well as as, as Duncan Edwards and all the other. Eddie Coleman, all the other players um, who'd gone, plus reserves. And it's, in a way, a tribute to the prolific nature of United's youth development 
that the players you named as you went from back to front in that picture, you know, were decent players. Ian Greaves, Freddie Goodwin, um, you know, Giles was al almost ready, a bit young, but uh, almost ready. And, and there were still lots of, there was still a, enough quality to paper over some of the cracks as, as we're about to find out the season. And there's the picture. Now look at Bill Fawkes's face. Um, Harry Gregg coming in uh, third, um, as well as, as, as Charlton, another survivor. Um, I can't see Charlton there, but uh, I think that's Warren Bradley, isn't it? Behind uh, Harry Gregg, very small winger. Ernie Taylor behind Greg, I think. I um, Charlton, it's, it's, Charlton it's like first game, didn't he, Charlton? He yeah. came in a little bit later, so, yeah. And is that Dennis Violet second in the... Uh, no, I think that's, that's Ronnie Cope. Ronnie Cope, yes. There was a um, centre-back who it was decided would not travel. Jeff Bent travelled instead and perished. If you look at the... The faces on the fans there, is, but the rattles. You remember the rattles? People used to twirl rattles to make a noise. Um, anyway, the atmosphere as this this game starts. Is this the Sheffield Wednesday game, Wayne? Yeah, yeah. This is the cup tie against Sheffield Wednesday United's first game after Munich. Uh, they won, but uh, the the way the game was played was was very strange. They the, the Sheffield Wednesday players, according to observers, including a young Michael Parkinson who was reporting the game, uh, the Sheffield Wednesday players seemed a little, they seemed to think it was disrespectful to challenge too hard. Um, so that helped United. Um, also, um, Shay Brennan, later to become a, a famous fullback, but then still playing as a, a winger, took a corner and the wind blew it into the net. And it, it, there was just a feeling that this Manchester United had to win this game to, as, as a sort of beginning of a catharsis. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, the Wednesday players would have been trying, but it, it, it was a slightly unreal occasion. Um, but that was, yes, Manchester United won and, and were still in the cup. Yeah, um, United league form dipped predictably. I mean, they only won one game in the rest of the league season, but it was a knockout format of the FA Cup, really, the jeopardy of the ties. They brought the best out of this young squad and they remarkably battled all the way to the FA Cup final. Um, there's a strong argument you could make that this two-month period is one of the most important in the club's history because of what it represented. Um, the disaster, by nature of its very occurrence, had a transformative impact, an unspoken impact on what it now meant to represent United and to follow the Busby babes who were now canonised and crystallised. Mm. Um, you might even argue, Paddy, that the last great thing the babes did was to save the club. And I, I may be a little emotionally deep into this, but I think in the hope of Edwards and the wish of Busby to carry on, Murphy might not have continued. And without Murphy continuing, if the club had remained in lim limbo as they were, Busby yes. might well have not been convinced <laughs> to continue. Uh, we've had this discussion before, Wayne, and I, I, I think two things, uh, and I, I agree with you. 
I think two things need need to be added really. One is, if you recall, um, there had been about nine years earlier, a tragic crash of a, of a great team in a Torino team yeah. in Italy. Uh, the plane uh, collided with a mountain and there was huge if, if any if even more severe loss of life among the players as as at munich torino who were probably the best team in europe at that time although there was no european competition they'd won the italian title four or five years in a row they were revered but since that day in 60, 70, whatever it is, years, Torino have ceased to be even the biggest club in Turin. Juventus have become the most famous club in Turin and have won so much more. Torino have won one title, but only one in, in a lifetime. Manchester United did not die on that day. And it, it, it although the, you cannot, it, there's no blame to the, to, to Torino, but failing to recover from such a profound misfortune, it somehow serves to emphasize the resilience epitomized by Murphy. Uh, Busby's resilience was shown later, and this is the second thing I'd like to say. Among all of the heroes of Manchester United, perhaps one that doesn't get as much credit as she deserves is Jean Busby. Because Matt suffered all the negative emotions that one does in a situation like that, including guilt. I, he suffered grief. And bear in mind that for such a devout Roman Catholic to encounter as he confesses to, uh, a feeling of, I don't care whether I live or die after this. This is just awful. He was in pain. He was in grief. He was in guilt. And Jean, why she did it, I don't know. Maybe she just believed it. Or maybe she felt this was the only way Matt was going to snap out of it once she was sure he was going to live. And she told him, you have to do it. For the players who haven't survived and eventually he accepted that argument and he came back and as the cup run you know mounted well here he is coming back this is him leaving the rest of their isar hospital yeah in yeah. munich um still as you can see very unsteady after two three months and that's gene on his right and I think in the annals of Manchester United, the way Jean convinced Matt not to collapse and to throw all his growing energy back into the revival of Manchester United in honor of those who died. And this is them coming back to their house in Cholton Kamhardi. And there's the crowd and the little boys. And as always with the Busbys, poodles. That's um, the Jean and Matt and their daughter Sheena. 
um, Sandy, the son, isn't in the picture, but they always had poodles, loved black poodles. And there it is, center stage. Obviously glad to have Matt back. Uh, but look at how emaciated he, he looks, how drawn. Um, and it's going to take him still another few months before he becomes anything like his, his normal self. But at least now he has that fire in his heart again that Manchester United must come back. And as far as fire in the heart is concerned, uh, Jimmy Murphy um, was never found wanting in that department. Um, absolutely not. And um, <laughs> I always think that we, we've talked so much about Murphy and Busby, and I think that maybe it might be a good time to reflect on some of these players that you see oh, yes, in this please. team. Um, Alex Dawson, um, we've talked about his introduction to the side previously. He came in and he started to score a lot of goals. Well, I just want to look at the... See, Dawson scored a hat-trick in the FA Cup semi-final as United yes. made all the way to the final. But let's look at the likes of Brennan, Dawson, Cope, Pearson. We've talked about the gradual education of some of these players. Mark Jones was a good case in point because at the start of this season he was back in the reserves to try and redevelop and win his place back from Jackie Blanchflower and he was yeah. doing that yeah. it was a young squad the balance was perfect to give these players their due education through the youth team and reserves but with eight players lost two further careers over there's a complete outfield team and in the center back position you lost Jones and Blanchflower in the left hand positions you lost the strength of Byrne, Bent and Peg. The halfback line was completely lost in Coleman and Edwards, and the goals of Whelan and Taylor were gone. These youngsters who had to come in, had to, they were expected to fill the boots of players who developed their class over four or five years. They were right. skipping this education. Their achievements in the memories of the friends and heroes. I've said it before, without wanting to spoil this episode, they lose the cup final. But this is more, it's ethereal. It's something more than football. It transcends that because yeah. those players did deserve medals. The emotional weight and the toll that it would take on some careers we'll come to discuss in later episodes. But even in this one with Mark Pearson um, and even Kenny Morgans, who, who survived yeah. the crash but um, just wasn't himself afterwards. Paddy. When you think about what these young men went through, yes, the ones who died were the biggest victims and the ones who lost their careers, but the emotional repercussions for these players is just, it's almost a way that's too great to even think about, isn't it? Yes, it was. And, and for that reason, it was, a, it was a taboo subject. You see, yeah. those guys in front of us, when they went back to the, the dressing rooms, um, after a training session, the last thing they would be discussing was would be Munich. It was a taboo subject for, for obvious reasons that, you know, there was nothing that could be done anymore. They had to try to look forward. But of course, it was on their mind, always on their mind. But um, they, had to, they had to make the most of it. And I wonder just if it did affect the careers, I mean, Ian Greaves there is a second from the left in the team photo we're looking at. Yeah. Um, in between, uh, is that Cope and, and certainly Freddie Goodwin, long tall Freddie Goodwin, the footballer cricketer. Bobby um, Harrop is the other, the other lad. Bobby Harrop, right, yeah. Um, interesting that Greg, the goalkeeper, is by no means the tallest of the 
<laughs> the defensive line, isn't it? That could never happen today. But um, yes, the the uh, these boys had a shadow over their their career. Look at Fuchs. Once again, I'm drawing your attention to his expression um, as he looks towards the turf. You know, almost as if he's a million miles away from the team photograph. Um, and uh, and there's Shea Brennan of the of the famous corner, first goal after Munich. Uh, there's Shea Brennan on the um, standing next to Bill Inglis. Yeah, Bill Inglis, like so many of of the backroom staff at Manchester United, looking more like a country grocer than a trainer in his uh, white overall jacket as uh, coach, should I say? Um, but yes. Um, wonderful picture with the industry of uh, Trafford Park in the background. Yeah, um, United do get all the way to the final. They they face Bolton. Um, Busby's back now. He's able to address the team, but Jimmy Murphy walked the team out. Um, but Paddy, I mean, the, we've talked about goalkeeping mishaps for United in finals before. It's mm. a similar story this time. Not not exactly as brutal as, as previously, but Harry Gregg felt um, hard done by in the final. Yes, uh, and and rightly so. Um, somebody took one of the Bolton players, maybe Dennis Stevens, one of them, uh, took took a shot. Um, Greg parried it. The ball went up into the air. And as he caught it, uh, Harry always used to say, I was frightened of nothing except of anybody doing my back in. Very conscious of his back. And along comes the great Nat Lofthouse. And in keeping with those times when you were allowed to batter goalkeepers into the net, uh, did so. Uh, still was a controversial goal, even among the rules of that time, because it was supposed to be shoulder to shoulder, not shoulder to back. So it wasn't, it, 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 again, I mean, I, I'm not biased. I'm not a Man United fan, but I thought they were very hard done by it, it with the McParland Wood incident in the, in the previous cup final, I thought it'd be even more hard done by, but no, not but equally hard done by uh, when Harry Gregg was bundled into the net. But I think also a neutral or even a Manchester United fan would admit that Bolton were the better side. They, I bear in mind also that although they were uh, playing a Man United torn apart by tragedy, they were also playing the entire British nation. Yeah. At that time, the, the FA Cup final was was the biggest day in football and uh, watched increasingly on television by, and, and certainly listened to on the radio by pretty well everybody. Um, and the whole nation wanted Manchester United, wanted this incredible post-Munich run to culminate in the winning. So... There's a very good, if you look at the Pathé News or, or the old film of that final, you'll see uh, Lofthouse, captain, centre forward and lion of Bolton Wanderers, clenching his fist and saying, come on, you know, don't, we've, we've got to win this game. It doesn't matter what the sentiment of the country need, uh, wants. We're, we're playing for Bolton. And, uh, of course, he was, he was the hero of the match and Bolton won. Yeah. Um, Afterwards, though, it wasn't the end of United's season, as you'll be aware, because um, they, there was still Europe because United had got to the semi-finals against uh, Milan. 
Yeah. Um, just to close on the final, I mean, United lost, but it was getting to the final that was the accomplishment. It was yes, the drive of these young players. It basically was showing that anything was possible so long as they gave everything. Um, yeah. And one, one final note of trivia on the on the final, you'll notice on, or you'll notice on the image there that they've got a new crest on the shirt. Um, you may remember that on the white kit last time round in the fifty seven final, the the shirt bore the Manchester coat of arms. This yes. time around. They've got a new crest on their the red kit, which is a, a golden eagle, as you'll see here. Um, now, the eagle was popularly mistaken for a phoenix, symbolising United rising from the ashes. Yeah, actually, it's, it follows the coat of arms in, in Manchester, actually being redesigned the, uh, the previous year, uh, which they added the detail of the eagle to the mantle. Now, the eagle is symbolic of Manchester's connection with ancient Rome. And the white mural crown uh, represents um, a municipal corporation or expanding community enjoying clean air um, <laughs> for the smoggy airs of Manchester. <laughs> an oxymoron. Um, so it's actually um, <clears throat> related to the Manchester coat of arms and, and not a phoenix, although I mean, symbolically it does represent a phoenix to, to many fans, even though... Um, Technically, it's not true. That's why we're here. Um, like Wolf McGuinness's recollection of the great Duncan Edwards goals, we're here to ruin sentiment and and talk about yeah. what it actually was. Um, but yeah, Paddy, um, we'll talk about um, the squad statistics. We'll do them next time. I'll do a separate video to cover the squad statistics. But let's cover the end of the season. Um, United yeah. had qualified for the semi-final of the European Cup. We must it was uh, delayed, delayed yeah. until after Wembley. Um, and for the home leg, uh, and this is again another sign of the times that younger viewers and listeners will will find odd, but for the home leg of a European Cup semi-final, United lacked Bobby Charlton, not because he was injured or suspended, but because England came first, and he scored two as England beat Portugal at Wembley at the same time. Um, uh, Milan's took the lead. V Dennis Violet equalised, and uh, he was fouled uh, late on by Cesare Maldini, the father of Paolo Maldini, uh, who uh, got a penalty. Ernie Taylor got United in front. They went to Italy by train and ferry, again eschewing uh, air travel, understandably. Um, and the, the, but the journey lasted more than 48 hours and at San Siro they lost 4-0 um, to a, a very good Milan side who pushed Real Madrid all the way in the final but Real Madrid won yet again. Um, went to extra time, Di Stefano was the, was the difference. Um, at the same time just to round off the season by a, a nod towards United, uh, United's youth policy which we the, the Youth Cup final was a, almost a regular fixture for United. Uh, Wolves won that, um, although United uh, did do okay, and um, that was that was pretty well it. Um, you were going to go through the squad details as usual, Wayne. We'll we'll do the squad on the. I'll, I'll do a separate video for the squad because obviously we this is a long okay. podcast and obviously we've we've covered a lot of ground in there. But yeah, Wolves as well as winning, ending United's monopoly on the Youth Cup because um, United had won five of the bounce. They also 
did win the league as they expected, um, which which is rather sad for Wolves in a way because it was such a great achievement by them that it's kind of diminished by the the disaster. But they they do nonetheless deserve a lot of credit for having a great side, don't they, Paddy? We should um, we should say that Wolves did have a great first team as well. It wasn't <laughs> terrific. Yeah. It, it was terrific, and and I, I think it's significant that. From the Manchester United point of view and from the Wolves point of view, of course, the rivalry probably exacerbated by Wolves, uh, United having s- swept Duncan Edwards away from Wolves' doorstep in the in the Black Country. But um, it was it was a friendly rivalry. The the, the managers, Cullis and Busby, were friends, um, but it was a very very keen rivalry. And yes, Wolves were the um, you know, had been challengers throughout United's two-year dominance of the league. Would United, but from Munich, have... Well, only they could... They were a long way behind Wolves, even before Munich. The only reason I would say... I I wouldn't say no chance, you know, that Wolves would have won it anyway, is that Manchester United were capable of doing these extraordinary things even then. But I would say I would put United's chances of having won that, but for Munich, at around ten percent, ten to fifteen percent, no more. Um, Wolves, when they did uh, come to Old Trafford for that decider that was due to be played on the Saturday after Munich, they won four nil. So whether they would have beaten the pre-Munich team four nil is another matter. But they were, as you sportingly concede, Wayne, uh, they were a tremendous side. Yeah. Um... And that's it. I mean, I, I think over the um, years, the episodes that we've covered the babes, I think we've done a very, um, I think we've been as comprehensive as we can and, and as fair and balanced as we can. Not all sunshine and light all the time. And I will also put a link in the description because Paddy and I have talked about Munich and, and Murphy and Busby on various other podcasts. So there may be something in those other pod- podcasts that we've discussed that you may have missed. Um, like I said, there will be a follow-up episode to this where I'll, I'll run through the squad statistics yeah. and then the um, the uh, tactics for this season. I could do that um, for, for a follow-on video to this. But um, for, for myself and Paddy, it will be the 58-59 season that we'll be discussing next um, as United sent and they look to rebuild with Busby back in charge and carried still on this wave of uh, grief and emotion, which... Um, yeah, we'll discuss in greater detail in the following season how well that collateral damage impacted the squad uh, moving forward. Um, if you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the comment, uh, the conversation in the comment section. Thanks for sticking with with my voice as well. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Thanks for watching and listening. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 
And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.